Well, we put a half of them over there, okay. and I'll put another half back here. Do you need a set of notes? Yes, and mine yeah. for my husband, too. Absolutely. Get my fingers to work there. There you go. There you go. Thank you. I'll leave a stack here.
uh, a special time. I always, I always hate to end all the, the fellowshipping and the visiting because that's good too. Um, hopefully you got a set of notes. I think there's a stack back in this corner and there's a stack straight back there if you still need some. Uh, this is the second handout. I'm going to go ahead and open with a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that it's been preserved for us. It's been translated. Uh, we have many good Christians who have studied it and that we can learn from. Um, thankful for the, the prophet Matthew among all the, the prophets, the apostles, who you directed to write something that would be living and active. And even today, thousands of years later, we can study it and meditate upon it, think about it, and it can truly make us to become more like Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to use this time well and that your Spirit would bless the study of the Word that he inspired. And we ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're jumping into Matthew chapter 1. Um, if you have your Bible, you can follow along, or I'll often reference particular verses in the notes. I tried as much as possible, if I'm quoting a specific place, to put that in bold, and to put the verse numbers in bold, so that you'd have an idea of where I was referring to. Tonight we're going to look at the first chapter. The first chapter basically has two sections. So the first section is verses 1 through 17. That would be the genealogy of Jesus. So where did Jesus come from, at least uh, as far as his human nature? And I'll show you, I think, that it also implies what will come of Jesus, or what will Jesus' family history be. So that's the first part, verses 1 through 17. And then the last part, a shorter paragraph at the end, we'll talk about his actual birth. All right, so let's look at that genealogy, verses 1 through 17. So point A there, I tried to boil the whole genealogy, that section, into one big idea. You know, what is, what is Matthew trying to teach us from these opening 17 verses? I think the genealogy presents Jesus as the one who fulfills the promise made to Abraham. If you remember, Abraham received a promise that he would be a blessing to the whole world by being the son of David who will save Israel from their sins. <clears throat> Everyone follow along with me there at the top of page 8? I've been able to find that. So the top of page 8, we're looking at the opening section, his genealogy, verses 1 through 17. So he's the Savior. He's going to fulfill the promise that was made long ago to Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world. And he's going to fulfill the promise to Abraham by being the perfect, the ideal son of David. So those two concepts will go together. So just, uh, we won't go verse by verse through the genealogy and talk about every person because that would be a little bit dry, right? We would be here a long time. There's a lot of strange names here, some names that are familiar to us as you go through, especially in the first two sections of it. And then the names become very obscure. But let's just look at this opening phrase, the way it starts. So here in my Bible, in the NIV, it starts out, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Sometimes it's helpful to compare other English translations 
So as you might be aware, the ESV, the NASB, sometimes they tend to be a little word for word in their translation, which can be good and can be bad. The bad part is that sometimes it sounds like Yoda is speaking and it doesn't sound like good English. Uh, but the positive side of it is it helps us sometimes see specific words in the text. And so there's a specific phrase there that's the book of the genealogy. It would be a, a more wooden or, or literal translation. And this is a phrase that actually appears several times in the Old Testament, specifically in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that would have been familiar to Matthew and the other first century Christians. So they read their Old Testament often in Greek. It had been translated for them. And when they saw that phrase, book of the generations, it would have reminded them, I think, of this reoccurring phrase in Genesis. So two times the exact same phrase occurs. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, you have in the NIV, it says, this is the account of the heaven and the earth. But that phrase translated account is that same phrase, the book of the generation. So basically, this is the, the opening scene where we're told this is where the heaven and earth came from. God made it. And now I'm going to tell you the history of the heaven and earth. So where did heaven and earth come from? And then what happens to it? Okay. Same thing happens with Adam's family line in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. Not so much where did Adam come from, but now we're going to get a story about Adam's family. Okay, So it's actually looking forward to his descendants. Same thing happens in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Not the exact same phrase, but a very similar phrase. Are you familiar with this from reading through the book of Genesis? If you've read through the book of Genesis, one of the things that we should always do when we're studying Scripture is look for repeated phrases. That's the way that the biblical authors will often mark out their sections. And this one, like clockwork, just keeps showing up over and over again. And it basically is the idea of, hey, I'm going to now tell you about an individual who's, who's famous, who's well-known. I'm going to tell you a little bit about where he came from. But more specifically, I'm going to talk about his family moving forward. What was his legacy? What results did he have in this world? So think about what Matthew is doing with Jesus. At a minimum, at a minimum, I think he's connecting Jesus' story with the Old Testament. When Matthew starts telling the story of Jesus, he's not coming up with a completely new story. He's actually giving you a new chapter to an old story. The Old Testament for them was already Scripture, right? They revered it, they memorized it, they studied it. It was a story they knew very well, and Matthew is coming along and saying, hey, you know this old story that you've known your whole life, that you were taught since you were children. I'm giving you a new installment of it, the last chapter, so to speak, but it has a connection. But even more than that, as I say there in the notes, because of the use of this phrase, probably when Matthew says that he's referring to the genealogy, the genealogy there in the middle of that first paragraph, that paragraph that's labeled number one, it likely refers to more than just the list of names in verses 2 through 16. So the way we would use the word genealogy, we would just be thinking about that list of names he's probably using it a little bit more broadly. At minimum, it probably refers to the first couple chapters where Jesus' infancy stories are told. But I think a better argument can be made that he's actually referring to his whole book. So this, if we go back one slide, this book of the genealogy 
I think a good argument could be made, it's referring to the whole book of Matthew. So the whole book of Matthew is Jesus' family history. Is he going to have children? Is he going to have a family? What's going to be his legacy? Just like we saw for Adam, for Shem, for Jacob, all of the patriarchs in the Old Testament. So going back to that first phrase now, we'll look at it now in the NIV. It's the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we have three three titles here. So number two, when Jesus is introduced as the Messiah, this title is usually translated as, as Christ in our English Bibles. I like the way that the NIV translates it as Messiah. I think that better for us reminds us that it's a title. So as I often will say, especially when I'm, I'm teaching kids, you know, the Bible, I say Christ isn't his last name. You know, it wasn't Mr. Christ. I think that's how we often think of it. It's a title like Caesar or a title like Pharaoh, okay? There were lots of people in the Old Testament that could have been referred to as the Messiah, the anointed one, because beginning with David, all of those kings of Israel were anointed. But pretty soon, as you go through the Old Testament, you realize two things. One of all, the first thing you notice is that David and his sons aren't doing a perfect job of representing God as a perfect king in this world. That we need someone better, someone greater than even David. And second of all, especially as we get into the prophets, we realize that someday there's going to come an ideal or a perfect son of David. He is going to be the anointed one, the Messiah, who will rescue this world from its curse, all right? Just several different passages from the Old Testament that we could go to. In the parentheses there, I list uh, about four of them. But this one's from Psalm 132. So Psalm 132 looks like it was a song that was written after David's time. It's probably after the people had started experiencing some of the curses, some of the results of their sin. He's looking back on David's reign, and he's remembering the promise that God made to David. And he says, here I will make a horn. This is, so this is God speaking now through the psalmist at the end of the psalm. He says, I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. So there's our phrase, anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned, will be adorned with a radiant crown. So how, how could we translate that? I think maybe one way is just to think of him as the chosen one. I think that conveys the meaning of the title. The anointed one, the chosen one, he's the Messiah, okay? Second of all here, Jesus is also introduced as the son of David and then the son of Abraham. So he's the legitimate heir to the kingdom promises made to these two men. Notice they're, they're put out of order chronologically. So the emphasis comes on David. He's mentioned first, and then Abraham is brought up. So remember, David, he was promised many things. If you look at 2 Samuel 7, or compare that with Psalm 89, he was promised an everlasting dynasty, so he would have a family that would rule forever. He would have a kingdom, so that implies that there would be a a territory, a, a, a nation, a realm, you could say, and it would have people in it and that he would have a throne, that this right to rule would never pass from his family. Now, individual people, individual people along the way could get kicked off the throne because of their sin, but it had to continue in that family. 
until eventually there would be one of his descendants who would be faithful to God. It would never break God's law. It would actually, because of that, be able to rule forever. That was their hope. So many Jews in the first century recognized that the coming Messiah, this chosen one, would also be a descendant of David. So when they use the title Son of David, so for example, in the Gospels, there'll be people that will come up to Jesus and they'll say, have mercy on me, Son of David. Son of David is interchangeable with Messiah or chosen one. The, the two are used synonymously. So one way we can see this is by looking at some Jewish literature that was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So every once in a while in this class, I'll give you a little taste of Jewish literature from the intertestamental period. So it was written after the Old Testament was completed and before the New Testament began. It's not scripture. It's not scripture. Sometimes it has mistakes in it or bad theology. It's written by devout Jewish people, not always necessary believers, though, not always necessarily born-again people, but it gives us an idea of what they were hoping for or what they were expecting. So this is from a document called the Psalms of Solomon, which uh, isn't actually written by Solomon because it was written in the first century B.C., so about 100 years before Jesus. Why did they write these? Well, they wrote these probably in response to the Romans taking over their country. That seemed like a tragedy to most pious Jews, right? That they have now Gentiles ruling directly over their country, and the, the most devout among them would have realized that this was due to their sin. Okay, this is a problem that we have Romans ruling us, and God is punishing us. And what we really need to do is be better people, be more devout to the law, okay? And then through our obedience that someday God will return and bring the Messiah. So this is what this passage says. It says, See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. And it talks a little bit about what this king will do. He'll undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. Remember, Jesus will use a phrase pretty much like that in Luke chapter 21. He'll talk about Gentiles trampling on Jerusalem. And then it says about this Messiah, this is what they believed. This is what they're expecting. He will gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness, and he will judge the tribes of the people that have been made holy by the Lord their God. So one of the things that they expected from the Old Testament was that he would gather all of their tribes, not just Judah, not just the southern tribe that had come back from Babylon, but all the tribes. Sometimes those tribes that we refer to as the lost tribes of Israel, the people that were scattered by the Assyrian conquest and had never returned. Devout Jews were like, well, no, God has to keep his promise. He has to gather all of our brethren and bring us all back to our promised land. And then it says, I'm skipping ahead in the passage, but he says, And he will be a righteous king over them, taught by God. There will be no unrighteousness among them in his days, for all shall be holy, and their king shall be the Lord Messiah. So you see the multiple titles that they use interchangeably. He could be the son of David. He could be the king. He could be the anointed one. He could be their Lord. And they use Lord interchangeably with, with king, their ruler over them. Okay, This is the expectation. And Matthew is saying in, strong, in the strongest possible terms that the one you've waited for for so long is Jesus of Nazareth. I know he doesn't look like what you thought he was going to look like, 
that he is the one. He is the chosen king, okay? But he's also the one who brings about the promise made to Abraham. So at the bottom of the page there, I say, Abraham was promised that through him all the nations of the earth. So there's definitely going to be this emphasis in the book of Matthew. It's not just going to be the salvation and the restoration of Israel, although it has to be that. It can't be less than that. But as the prophet says in the Old Testament, it's too small of a thing for God to raise up his servant just to do that. He's also going to bring a blessing to the, all of the nations. All right? And so this reminds us of the universal blessing promised Abram. Matthew reverses the chronological order by naming David before Abraham, probably emphasizing Jesus' role as the king of the Jews. But at the outset of the book, we're reminded of the universal character of the Messiah's ministry. All right? So I think with that opening verse, we're reminded of multiple titles given to Jesus. We're reminded of multiple ways in which he's going to fulfill promises that God made long ago to individuals in the Old Testament. All right, then what about the, the genealogy itself? Or at least what we would call the genealogy, this, this group of names. So Jesus' ancestry is presented in three groups with 14 generations each. So if you look at verse 17, Matthew makes it really clear that you're supposed to arrange the names that he just gave you into three groups of 14. It does pose a little bit of a problem. If you go through and count them, you seem to be one name short. And so there's been multiple ways that people have explained that. I think probably the most common way is the way I have it up here is that one of the names gets repeated twice. So it could be that David, because David seems to be the focus of this ancestry, David's name is the 14th in the first set, and then he gets repeated again and he heads the next set. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that uh, there's actually supposed to be a missing name at the end. Okay? So remember, if this is Jesus' family history, if we're supposed to be reading the whole gospel as his, his account of what happens with his family, that missing generation could be this group of people that we're going to identify, this new community, these, these little ones, these brothers and sisters who are united with him. So some people would argue that we belong in the, in the missing category at the very bottom. Maybe if I come back in a few years, I'll be more persuaded of that. At this point, I'm not as persuaded. I'm more persuaded that probably a name gets repeated in order to keep this symmetrical, and it's probably, it's probably David. There's lots of interesting things about this. One of the things, though, in order to get this down to just three groups of 14, it's a selective list of Jesus's ancestry. So the, the term there, the father of in our Bible that keeps getting re repeated, so-and-so is the father of so-and-so and so forth, that term is broad enough that it doesn't have to mean a literal man giving birth to a son. It could refer to a grandfather or a great-grandfather. It just means that one man was the ancestor of another man, and together they're a family unit, they're a family group. And he's calling them genealogies, which is different than the word we use, genealogy, or generations, I'm sorry. When we say generation, we think everyone alive about the same time, like the baby boomers, you know, Generation X, people who are roughly living contemporaneously. He seems to be using generation to refer to, to family groups. 
So a guy and then everyone that descended from him until you get to the next guy. And he's counting those together as a group. And we know this, you know, I'd say there in paragraph four, um, because of the names that are missing. There's several prominent kings who aren't named. I think, I think we can also see that the genealogies are selective if you think about the distance between Rahab and David. So Rahab, remember, helps the spies at the time of the conquest. And then David comes along, what, about 400 years later? There's too big of a gap for Rahab to be as closely related to David as she appears to be in the genealogy. So it's showing, again, that there's some, some gaps. Why 14? Why did he choose 14? All right. So I'm going to show you a picture here. I got a clock over here on the left. So this is a, this is a Hebrew clock from the time of Christ. No, not really. Just making sure you're awake. It's not really. Okay, this is, I found this online today. This is just a, a Hebrew clock that you can buy. But it reminds us that traditionally the Hebrew language doesn't have numerals. Now, I'm told, has anybody been to Israel? Okay. I'm told that they use like Arabic numerals today, like we do. So like at gas pumps or the, the prices at McDonald's, they use the numbering system that we're used to. But that's relatively recent that they've adopted that as a culture. Traditionally, what they did is they took their letters and their letters substituted also as their numerals. So on that clock, if you start in the, the one position here, this is the first letter of their alphabet, Aleph. This is the second letter, Bait, third letter, Gimel, and so forth. If you notice David's name, it has three consonants. They don't write with vowels. They only use consonants, which is that's hard for us to understand, but that's just how they do it. And it's a D sound, a V sound, and then a D sound. So that's where we get David. But if you match these up with the clock, you realize that the D, or their Dalit, is their fourth letter, and this V sound, the Vav, is their sixth letter. So when they would have looked at the name David, to them, it just intuitively would have looked like a four, a six, and a four. And so a careful reader, when he realized that David is a central figure in this genealogy, Matthew chose 14. 14 seems like a strange number for him to use, but he's probably doing it because David, to them, would have looked like 14. So... In general, I have to say this, in general, I'm not a big fan of finding secret codes and numbers in the Bible. I always think that's a dangerous thing to be doing. But I think in this case, it wasn't a secret to them. It seems mysterious and maybe a little sh shady for me to explain it this way to us, but that's because we don't, we're not used to looking at the letters of his name as numerals, okay? I think it's the type of thing that maybe on the first reading, someone might have passed over. But a careful reader who's looking at Matthew's account, they would have realized what he's doing. As one writer has put it, I think sometimes Matthew whispers things. He says things subtly so that his reader has to lean in a little closer. Because sometimes when we lean in closer and we listen a little harder and we hear echoes or allusions to the Old Testament, which we're going to see as we go through his book, they become a little bit more meaningful for us. He's got our attention a little bit better. So I think that's probably why he chooses 14. But notice if we go back to this list, there's a couple of things that stand out to us. One of them is that when we get to the, the third list over here, so all of the, 
men who were ancestors of Jesus after the deportation to Babylon, until you get to Joseph, who we get introduced to in just a few verses, we don't know any of those men, do we? No famous names there, right? Because none of them were kings. The only one we know is the, the third from the top there, Zerubbabel, right? Because he led the, the people who came back to rebuild. But I think one of the effects of reading this genealogy, if you're a careful, thoughtful Jewish person, is that it reminds you of the, the tragedy that they're in, their plight. That ever since they've come back from Babylon, they haven't had a king. And just reading through all of these obscure names that mean absolutely nothing to us and would have meant nothing to the original readers, they wouldn't have known who these guys were, it would have reminded them, we need a king, right? So it's reminded them of the, the plight that Jesus is coming as the solution. I think one of the other interesting things that we can point out is the inclusion of women here. So many writers have noticed this, many Christian readers. I think it stands out to us. Point five, Matthew <clears throat> includes four women other than Mary in his list, which was unusual for the time period. So Tamar is named in verse three. <coughs> Excuse me, we talked about Rahab. Ruth in verse 5, and then he kind of in a sideways way, he refers to the wife of Uriah, which we would have known as, as Bathsheba, right? Um, I think one explanation for this is that he's trying to include Gentiles. I think the only problem with that is we're not really sure that Bathsheba is a Gentile, even though she's married to a man who appears to have been a, a convert into Judaism. It doesn't necessarily mean that she herself was a Gentile. It also doesn't fully explain why she isn't named. So why does Matthew name all of the other women, but then just refer to her as the wife of Uriah? Another possibility, I think this is a little bit more likely, is that Matthew is just trying to remind us of all the twists and turns in God's providence that have brought us to Jesus. I think this gets us a little closer to the, the truth. So all of those women are associated with some, some pretty bad actions in the Old Testament. But in all of their cases, maybe to somewhat Tamar, but even in her case, if you go back and read those stories, the emphasis really is on the sin of the men involved, right? It's Judah's sin, right? It's Naomi's husband and her, her son's sin, right? It's definitely David's sin, right? Um, in all of these cases, Rahab is an unusual one. I don't know if that fully explains Rahab, but I think at least with the kind of backhanded reference to Bathsheba and her relationship to David, it reminds us of the, the failures of the men of Israel, and especially of their king. So he could have arranged this grouping any way he wanted. So remember, he's leaving out names. So if you're starting to leave out names, you could have grouped this so any one person stood at the head of these lists. You get how that works? So he deliberately puts David in the middle. I think he deliberately does 14 because he's emphasizing David. And so you got this glowing list of Jesus' ancestry with this reminder of their great King David. And then right in the middle of that, what's he do? He reminds us that David himself was in need of a Savior that David himself wasn't able to save his people from their sins, that David himself was actually a notorious sinner. He's the one that had to say, blessed is the man who God does not count their sins against them, right? He actually was in need of someone to come and save him himself. 
One last thing at the bottom of that page, uh, paragraph six. So twice the phrase and his brothers. So as I like to tell my students, these men are writing by hand and papyrus is expensive. So they just don't throw in random words for no reason. So he had some reason for adding it. So see, he does it right there with the fourth name, Judah. It's not just Judah. It's Judah and his brothers. Did you notice that? And then over here, when he refers to the deportation, he refers to Jeconiah and his brothers. So I think the first one likely draws attention to the fact that Jesus was to be the king over all Israel and not just over one tribe. I tried to emphasize that when we went through the Psalm of Solomon, that there was 12 tribes that were going to be gathered. Yes? Uh, it seems that she was a harlot, a prostitute. That's the most likely translation of the word. Yep. So again, so why is she included then? Um, there's no sin of anybody else involved. So I think there the most likely explanation is that she's a Gentile, and it's just one of those strange turns in God's providence. All along this way, you know, someone's compared the, the ancestry of Jesus to, do we have any Lord of the Rings fans here? Any Tolkien fans? In the Tolkien stories, the Hobbit has the ring, and the Hobbit's making that long journey to get to the, the volcano. And so for three long books, it's just this little guy in his ring, and he's trying to get there, and you're, you're wondering what's going to happen to this ring. Well, someone's compared this, the seed, the promise of the seed, the child, the descendant, to that ring. It was made all the way back in the garden, to Eve, right? That someday you'll have a, an offspring, a child, who will crush the head of the serpent. And then that, that grows all the way through the Old Testament. And the job description kind of gets fleshed out. We find out more details about him. He's going to be Abraham's son. He's going to be David's son. But all the way, as we're waiting for Jesus to come, all kinds of unlikely things happen. I mean, just think of the, the, the Judah story with, with Tamar or what happens with Ruth and her family, or what happens with, with Rahab. Um, if we were planning his ancestry, we probably would have done it differently, right? There's some stories in there that don't make for good flannel graph with kids. But, but when God was ordaining his plan to bring his, his seed, his child, his son into the world, that's how he chose to do it. And I think, I think what it does, it just magnifies God's greatness that despite our failures and the weak people that we are, that God is able to ordain all things to accomplish something good. So it, to me, it's not troubling that he used a, a prostitute or a harlot uh, because he's still using sinners like me today to do his work. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's a good question, though. It's a good question. Any other questions there, what we've talked about so far? So I've, I've kind of just thrown out a couple different ideas on why the women are included. And you notice I wasn't real dogmatic. Like, I can't say for sure this is why he did it. And maybe he had multiple ways or, or multiple things. But those are a couple possibilities, I think, that carry some weight, at least in my mind. All right, let's, uh, let's flip the page. We're talking here at the top of page 10 about why he includes this second reference in his brother. So, so this one here... I'm arguing that here it's referring to the other 11 tribes. 
So it reminds us that Jesus, when he comes to save his people, he's not just saving the people of Judah, he's saving all of Israel. And that's going to become important as we go through the book. So what does he mean, though, by this? I think probably if you went through all the commentaries, the most common explanation is that he's referring to the other men who ruled Judah right at the very end before they fell to Babylon. So I list their names there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Point uh, at the top of page 10, you've got three guys who aren't named. So not only are they strange names, but the Bible sometimes uses two different names for them, so it gets confusing. But we've got Joahaz, Joahaz, we've got Jehoiakim, and then we've got Zedekiah. So remember, good King Josiah, he died in battle. That would have been a complete tragedy to the people of Israel. For the first time, a son of David went into battle, and instead of being victorious, he actually fell. He actually died. Okay, it's the first time that's happened. His, his son was made king, Joahaz, but he reigns just a short time. And then we end up with a brother, um, and then we finally end up with a uncle, so you've got Jeconiah is the one who's named, and I'll come back to him why I think he's named, but there was actually three other men that ruled during the same time. That's one possibility. Just hold that thought, though, because I'm going to come up with, I think, a, another possibility to better explain why the 12 brothers. Point seven, he uses the word for exile, or in the ESV, it's deportation. So notice he doesn't say the Babylonian captivity. That's how we usually refer to it the captivity, he's actually thinking of the deportation itself. He's not talking about like the time they're in Babylon, and he doesn't say anything about them coming home from Babylon. He's just marking when they went to Babylon. And I think that's significant, because I think he sees whatever has happened since then as only a partial restoration. So remember, only some people came back from Babylon. All of the people were told they could go, back, could go back and they should go back. Only a few decided that they would. Many of them decided, we like Babylon. We'll just stay here. So it's only a small remnant that comes back. And the remnant that comes back, as far as we know, is only from Judah and the little tribe of Benjamin, right? There's none of those northern kingdoms come back. They might have dwindled here and there, some of them but not the full-sale restoration that the Old Testament had promised. So it's a deportation, and I think for Matthew, it's a deportation that is ongoing, okay? Let me just read a little bit there of paragraph 7. I think by choosing the deportation to Babylon as one of the three pivots in his genealogy, Matthew likely emphasizes its ongoing nature and presents Jesus as its solution, Remember, we're driving to verse 21 when it says Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. So in order for Matthew to get to that punchline, he's setting you up with, well, what do they need to be saved from? What is their problem? And one of their problems is that the deportation to Babylon has never fully been resolved. Well, why can I say that? Well, A, as already noted, Matthew emphasizes Israel's lack of a king by listing obscure names in the third section of the genealogy. B, the name, even in the second section, when you read through those lists of kings, as we've already talked about, several of them, most of them, remind us of horrible failures. C, I think here, Matthew's strange inclusion of and his brothers in verse 11 
likely points to Israel's national ongoing exile. The effects of the deportation were ongoing and it impacted all 12 tribes of Israel, not just Judah. So what I'm suggesting that those two and his brothers are parallel, that they mean the same thing in both instances. So the first time he mentions it, it reminds us, oh yeah, Judah had 11 other brothers and they all had a tribe that came from him. And oh yeah, it was Judah that was deported to Babylon, but the other 10 tribes had been in exile long before that, and they still continue in exile. Because I think, again, we can see that there's many places in the later books of the Old Testament and then into the intertestamental literature where the Jewish people themselves realize that, hey, what happened for us when we came back under Cyrus was a good thing. God was gracious to us. He did restore a measure of independence. We were allowed to rebuild our temple. But this isn't the final say. This isn't what Moses originally promised us, okay? This is from uh, the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 36 through 37. This is the Levites when they're praying. They're praying to God in Jerusalem with the restored temple, but they're acknowledging that they still need God to do something more. They've gotten a taste of it, a little advanced installment, but now they're waiting for the full restoration. They say, but see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors, so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. And then moving into the second century, just a couple of texts. Here in this text, the second century writer, he's referring back to Nehemiah 9. So he's referring to the passage that we just read. And he says to God as a prayer, Gather together our scattered people. Set free those who are slaves among the Gentiles. Look on those who are rejected and despised, and let the Gentiles know that you are our God. Punish those who oppress and are insolent with pride. Plant your people in your holy place as Moses promised. Okay, So they're looking all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, to the Pentateuch, where Moses said one day that they would return to the land and be restored after the covenant curses had come upon them. That's a passage that we'll, we'll look at later. And the people are saying that hasn't happened yet. And that's what we're waiting for God to do. One other passage. <clears throat> it says, It is God who has saved all his people. So God has done something. He's saved us. He's returned the inheritance to all in the kingship and the priesthood and the consecration as he promised through the law. But then we have hope in God that he will soon have mercy on us. There's that phrase again. And he will gather us from everywhere under heaven into his holy place. For he has rescued us from great evil and has purified the place. So God has saved us. He has rescued us. But we're expecting him to do more because we haven't yet received everything that Moses promised to us. So I'm suggesting here that in this opening genealogy, they're being reminded of their national plight, the sin that they've fallen under, the covenant curses, their lack of a king, their domination by Gentile rulers, and the fact that many of their brethren are still scattered around the ancient Near East and haven't been restored to their promised land. And they know that all three of those things have happened because they are sinners. The Pentateuch makes that very clear. And they need someone to come and save them from their sins.
But there's a hint here, at the very, even at the very end of the genealogy, that Jesus, this son of David, who is coming, he's unlike any other king. Because there's been this long list, I say there in verse 8. There's 39 times, or paragraph 8, 39 times that this verb that was translated was the father. It occurs because a male ancestor was doing something to produce an heir. So you have a, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, whatever he was, he did something to produce another man who's going to come along in the line. But not so with Jesus. In verse 16, the same verb occurs, but this time it's passive. Okay, Something was, was done to Jesus, but it was not done by, by Joseph, of whom Jesus was born. And even that little pronoun, whom there, is, is feminine. So there's a little tiny clue here that Jesus' birth isn't like the rest of the men who have preceded him in his, his, uh, his ancestry. All right, let's flip the page. I get questions sometimes about why the differences between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. So I included, just quickly, some of the options. We won't spend a lot of time on this because this might not be interesting to you. Has anybody ever thought about that before? Why is Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy? They're the same until you get to David. Well, they're the same in, from Abraham to David, because actually Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. So it's clear that uh, Luke is trying to show that Jesus is a descendant of Adam. It's good Pauline theology, that he is the new Adam, the second Adam. He's trying to make that clear. Uh, but then after David, it, instead of going to Solomon, Luke's genealogy goes to Nathan. And then there's a whole string of different names, people, until you get to to Jesus. Do you have a question? No, I was, I was <clears throat> thinking that being it somewhat go to the motive for writing, mm-hmm. Matthew was speaking to the Jews. Yeah. Luke was trying to give a, a, an exact um, account of things. Right. For people. So it was, it was a, you know, the, the motivation for their particular, and why God chose them in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think it has to do with their purpose for writing, that they have slightly different purposes. So I think that tradition is probably correct, that the Apostle Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and as a companion of Paul, he's presenting Jesus in the way that we're used to Paul presenting him, that he is the the second Adam. Um, So it looks like uh, Luke is emphasizing the biological line all the way back to Adam, where Matthew's purpose is to show that Jesus has the legal right to rule, and so he's showing the succession of kings. So I go through the options. In A there, I mean, a common one, you've probably heard this one before, that Matthew provides Joseph's genealogy, and then Luke provides Mary's genealogy. Have you heard that? It's plausible. So I named four, four good commentators that I respect. So it's possible. It's just there's no clear indication that that's what he's doing. I don't think if you had, if no one had ever told you that and you were just reading this on your own, I don't think you would have ever come to that because there's no clear indication that this is anything other than a genealogy that ends with Joseph in, all, in both instances. Another possibility, I think this one maybe is closer, that Matthew provides the line of royal succession from David to Joseph. And then Luke provides Joseph's physical lineage back to David through Nathan. 
And then they usually explain that through some leveret marriages or maybe some adoption that takes place. But if you boil it down to the basic question, number C there, it could be that Matthew simply provides the royal line to Joseph answering the question, who has the right to rule? So right now we need somebody on the throne because there's a vacancy. Who, who gets that spot? Who has the right? Where Luke is answering a different question. He's answering what were all of the biological ancestors of Joseph going back to Adam, or maybe Mary going back to Adam, whichever way you take that. But just remember, and I, I, this shows up sometimes in movies or comedies, that type of thing, when we talk about like the British royal family. So the, whoever is currently, whoever currently has the right to sit on the British throne, their ancestry doesn't go biologically perfectly back in a straight line, right? If you look at whoever has sat on the throne at any one time, their family tree looks like an amoeba, right? Because there's all kinds of variations and twists and turns that happen, right? Sometimes it has to skip over to certain people based on just the, the flow of history in God's province. So it's very likely that the same thing was happening in the lineage of David, right? That it wasn't just a son and then another son and then another son and so forth. That the thing got messy and complicated and so that Joseph is a biological son of David and he has the legal right to rule. He is the rightful heir. But it could be that many people in his day wouldn't have immediately picked up on that because to trace his succession rights back to David would have been complicated. And that's what Matthew has provided for us in, the, in this genealogy. Yeah, so that argument gets made because of the connection with Elizabeth. So remember, Elizabeth is in a priestly family. You know, she's married to a Levite, and uh, she is Mary's cousin, right? Uh, but there's a couple problems with that. One is that just because Elizabeth's married to a Levite, that doesn't necessarily make her a Levite. And just because even, at, let's say, you know, Mary or Elizabeth was a Levite, that doesn't necessarily make her cousin marry a Levite. So it's, it's a little shaky to make a good, strong case that she's from the priestly family. Actually, some people, this is more common, I hear people argue that Mary herself is a descendant of David. And I think that actually is a little bit more plausible, that she's actually a descendant of David and that Luke is tracing a biological line back from her. But I don't think either one of them is a slam-dunk argument. So... And of the two, I put more weight on that she's probably, uh, she's probably from the tribe of Judah. She's probably a descendant of David. I think that's more likely than that um, he's a priest. But uh, you remember the author to the Hebrews, so the author of the book of Hebrews, makes it very clear that Jesus is a unique kind of priest. That his, his priestly function does not go back to Levite. That in fact, he's like Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, remember, just pops on the scene in the Old Testament without any lineage. We don't know where Melchizedek came from, just that he is the guy chosen as the, as the priest. And the author of Hebrews seems to be making a comparison and saying the same thing happened with, with Jesus, that he was chosen by God to be a priest even though he wasn't a Levite. 
All right, that was probably more than you wanted to talk about in the genealogy. But is there any, any lingering question there that I didn't cover that you want to ask? There's, there's whole books that have been written on why the difference between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy. It's, it's admittedly a very complicated topic. But if you boil it down, I think it's because the two men have different purposes. Luke is trying to answer the question of, does Jesus really go back to Adam? Matthew is trying to answer the question, does Jesus really have the right to sit on David's throne? And so because they have two purposes, they present their, their data a little differently. Okay? Well, let's get to his birth then, all right? We've got, we got time. So this, this last little section, verses 18 through 29, or 25, is when Jesus is actually, actually born. So it occurs here, I say in point one, when Mary is pledged to be married. So some of us grew up with the King James Bible, right? It was betrothed. That was the, that was the old, old English term for that. So this is, it's stronger than our engagement, but it's less than being married, okay? It's a, it's a status in between. So they hadn't had relations. They weren't living together. They weren't married. But in order for this betrothal period to end, they actually needed a legal divorce, Okay, so that's why I say it's a little stronger than just an engagement period. It wasn't like, you know, Mary could just give a ring back to Joseph and all would be good. They'd actually have to appear before witnesses and go through the process of a formal divorce. Okay, if you were caught during the betrothal period committing adultery, you technically were under the death penalty under the Mosaic law. And I give you the verses there from Deuteronomy 22. Uh, we don't have any evidence that that was actually being carried out. I think likely in the first century, they were very lax about who they were stoning and who they weren't. So I don't, I don't know if she was under any immediate threat from that. But the problem and the, the thing that Matthew emphasizes is that Joseph is a righteous man. And so when there, when it refers to him as a righteous man at the top of page 12, Uh, That's Matthew's way of saying that he's a Jewish man who does try to keep the law. So he's not using righteous as like Paul would use righteous, as in imputed righteous or righteous being credited. He's talking about righteous as in what Joseph really does. And this will become important as we go through the the gospel because there's going to be this category of people in, in the gospels that are referred to as the sinners, right? These people, the tax collectors and the sinners, you know, the publicans, the, you know, the, the harlots and the sinners. There's a group within Palestine in the first century that have basically just decided we don't, we're not going to keep the law of Moses, right? We're just going to live like Gentiles. We're just going to live and do whatever we want. Uh, some of them were trying to get rid of their circumcision. They weren't keeping the Sabbath. They weren't keeping the Torah laws. They were just living like the heathens around them, okay? These are the people that are called the sinners in the Gospels. Matthew's making it very clear, Joseph isn't one of them, okay? Joseph is a believer. Joseph really does care about following God's law. So now he's in a dilemma. He, He cares about Mary. He doesn't want to put her in a situation where she would be publicly disgraced, not to mention any kind of legal penalty she might face. But on the other hand, he doesn't feel like he can rightly marry her if she's actually been involved in something inappropriate. So it's in the midst of this whole dilemma, point three there, that this angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream in verse 20. 
And notice that he's addressed how? He's addressed as Joseph what? Son of David. So there's our, our phrase there, okay? Remember, repeated phrases are important as you go through the Scripture. You remember our papyrus that we put up last week? They don't put even spaces between their words, let alone paragraph breaks. They don't have bold. They don't have italics. So they use repeated phrases. So here is Joseph. He's a righteous man, and he's the son of David. And the angel assures him that the right thing for him to do is to take Mary and marry her because the child that's being born to her is a miraculous sign that comes from God. He's, he's virgin born, okay? And specifically here, it refers to the prophecy that was given in Isaiah 7. So here's Matthew 121. Remember, is our kind of key verse. And here's the context around it. It says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Remember, Jesus means Yahweh saves. It's Joshua. I think that's going to be important. We'll come back to that. It's Yeshua. It's Joshua. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's a lot there in those few verses, isn't there? The one question is, in what sense does Jesus' birth to the Virgin Mary fulfill the promise in Isaiah 7? So you remember in Isaiah 7, uh, the, the relatively wicked, disobedient king of Judah He's in a dilemma because the northern king, the king of the top ten tribes, has joined an alliance with the king of Syria, and the two of them are going to come together and and face him in war. And so now, because he's in a jam, he goes to the prophet. He wants a word from God, and the prophet promises him, nothing's going to happen to you. Uh, Jerusalem's actually going to be saved, okay? And uh, the prophet says, you can even ask for a sign. If you ask for a sign, God will give it to you. And remember what he says, uh, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. I'm not going to put him to the test. So he acts pious, but actually he just doesn't want to do it. And so then the prophet says, okay, well, God himself will give you a sign. And the sign is going to be that someday there's going to be a child who's born to a virgin that child is going to grow up in a time of, of exile, a time when the country is in distress because he's going to be eating curds and honey. So like in my family, every time a hurricane came in Florida, we ate Spam, right? Because that was like our hurricane food. So you didn't eat regular food, you ate hurricane food. I know that's weird. So curds and honey, we might think, oh, that sounds like good food. But the whole point of that is that this is bad food. This is like emergency food. These are like rations. You only eat this kind of food when the country is in trouble. So this child's going to be born to a virgin. He's going to live at a time when the country is in trouble. But before he gets old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, these two kings that you're worried about will be gone. Well, some people would say that that prophecy only has weight if, it, if the child is born soon. So they would argue that the child has to be born in the immediate time frame of that it was first given, Okay. So that's why, for example, in the little commentary by Toussaint I recommended, he thinks there's a double fulfillment. So a child was born back in the 700s in the time of Isaiah, and then Jesus is born in in the first century, and there's parallels between the two childs. Or maybe they're a type-anti-type type type relationship. And this argument is, is common. I think it's more likely 
that Jesus himself is the sign and that the prophecy all along was directly promising this fulfillment and that the, the penalty of that king's unbelief, his failure to ask for the sign, is that he himself doesn't live to see it fulfilled. Because a sign doesn't have to happen in the immediate context. So we actually have a parallel to this. So in Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, this is actually in a footnote. So in footnote 5, I don't do a lot of footnotes, but every once in a while I'll throw in a footnote there. And this is where you can dive deeper if you're interested in this topic. There's lots of good sources that have been written on the Isaiah 7 prophecy. But the one author there, Matyer, he makes a very good point that back in Moses' day, remember Moses doesn't believe that he can really carry out the, the job that God asked him to do. Uh, you know, I'm slow of speech. You know, I'm not a good public speaker. I can't just march into Pharaoh's throne room and ask him. And so this is what God says to him. Uh, so Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh <clears throat> and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So he's telling Moses, I want you to go do this. And after you do this, this is going to be the sign that I was with you. You're going to go to Mount Sinai and there on the mountain, I'm going to meet you. Now, did that happen before or after he met with Pharaoh? After. Not, I mean, it's a relatively long period of time. Now, granted, it's not the same time period between Isaiah and Jesus. I get that. But it's still after. The prophet received a word from the Lord. He had to step out in faith, believing that what God had told him was true. And if he stepped out and believed God and acted upon it like we all should, after he did it, he would receive a confirming sign. He would meet with God on Mount Sinai. And I'm suggesting that the prophecy in Isaiah is the same way, except in that case, the man who received the prophecy, he didn't step out in faith. He doesn't get the confirming sign. He dies, but the nation is saved. The line of David does continue so that finally a miraculous child is born. He is born at a time when the nation is in trouble, a time when they would have to eat like special ration type food, when they're the effects of the exile are still continuing. And he comes not just to be any old child, but to be the child who rescues them from their sins. Okay? So that, that's my argument in a nutshell for the prophecy from Isaiah 7 being directly fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. Any questions about that? All right, one last point for tonight. Point five. So why a virgin birth? I gave you one reason. I think the virgin birth had to take place in order to fulfill the sign that was given in Isaiah 7. Second, I think Jesus had to be born of a virgin because in Jeremiah 22.30, remember Jeconiah? Remember the guy who was in the top right corner when I kept showing that genealogy? Why is he named? Remember, there was a bunch of other guys that ruled right around him relatives actually, close relatives. Why him? I think he's specifically named because he's the one who specifically receives a curse in Jeremiah 22. Remember, he's the, he's the character that actually persecutes Jeremiah, actually you know, ends up throwing him in prison, doesn't want to hear the, the revelation that God is giving through Jeremiah to him. 
And so this curse is put on Jeconiah that he will never have a physical descendant that will rule on the throne. So I think the fact that Jesus is, is virgin born, he's not a biological descendant of Jeconiah, I think it allows him to be the son of David with the right to rule, but still this curse on Jeconiah could maintain. But the third reason, and I think this is one that theologically we could think of as we flip the page, is that every time a child is conceived in the normal way, a new person comes into existence. So there's not like, like this, you know, there's not a place up in heaven with a bunch of spirit persons that just get put into bodies. As far as we can tell from studying scripture, every time a child is conceived, that's a new person, right? A new person has been created. But when Jesus comes into the world, he is not a new person, right? He's an eternal person. He's always been there. He wants to add something. He wants to add humanity, but he needs to add humanity without becoming a second person. So there's not there's not two competing people. He's one person, and he's the eternal Son of God. He's our creator, but now he's adding to himself humanity so that he could come and, and save us from our sins. Okay, So I think the first reason for the virgin birth is it fulfills that promise that was given in Isaiah 7. The second reason, it keeps him from not being a biological descendant of Jeconiah. And the third reason is because we have an eternal person coming now into the world. Because look one more time at your passage. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, something here is being hinted at for the first time in Matthew that will be developed. He's not just any child, right? But he's actually God with us. Right? This is actually God himself who's being miraculously born as a human so that he could save his people from their sins. All right, I'm out of time. So we'll stop there for tonight. And uh, Lord willing, I'll see you next week.